0: And If you have your Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in Matthew 6 this morning. Uh, We're going to look at the first 18 verses. My name is David. I help shepherd the Bible study that meets at Grace, and I'm helped by my friends, Angel Hernandez and Larry Brown. Uh, It's been a precious time. GBS is probably the highlight uh, of my time here in California, and it's a joy to serve with that ministry every week, but it's a special joy to serve this morning and look at uh, this chapter uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. Uh, these 18 verses, they fall within a larger sermon uh, preached by Jesus. It's the longest sermon, in fact, ever recorded by Jesus. And the purpose of the sermon was really to uh, correct a false understanding of righteousness. uh, the disciples, the crowds, the people generally had a wrong understanding of what constituted a real Christian. And so Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God He came as the king. The people rejected him because they had this faulty understanding of righteousness. Jesus gives this sermon to correct that false understanding. And he opens in chapter five with the famous nine beatitudes. Uh, And if you wanted to summarize that in one word, it's the word righteous. Jesus is going to explain what real righteousness looks like. In fact, uh, to prove that they had a wrong understanding in verse 20 of chapter five, he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is absolutely essential that you have a right understanding of righteousness. Uh, Those nine beatitudes are the spiritual attributes of an accepted kingdom citizen. And then verses 21 to 47, so the end of the chapter, so 521 to the end of chapter five, he explains what real righteousness looks like. And he goes six times to the Old Testament law and he shows you what it really looks like and how it was distorted or misinterpreted. Uh, Just for example, he talks about murder. Uh, Murder is not just physically stabbing somebody to death, so to speak. It's, It's even your heart attitude. So if you've ever been angry at somebody, if you've ever been even envious or had malice or bitterness towards somebody, even if they've slighted you or wronged you, in Jesus's eyes or in God's eyes, that is almost as if you were murdering that person. God is looking not just at the outward act, but also at the inward attitude. Uh, Even adultery. Uh, When it comes to adultery, it's not just physically sleeping with somebody's spouse, but also thoughts. He's looking at lustful thoughts. Even if you lust after somebody, it is almost as if you have committed the very act of adultery in God's eyes. So God is not looking at just the outward act, but also the inside attitude. And then chapter six, where we are now, it marks a key turning point in Jesus's sermon. And here he shifts from what righteousness is positively to what it is not. He shows how many people have a wrong understanding of righteousness. They have a tendency to subtly distort it. And so here he's going to expose what real righteousness looks like in the previous chapter, but then how it is subtly distorted. And so this this chapter, these 18 verses are kind of like a black mirror. It is soul-searching, it is exposing, it is revealing in so many ways, maybe a bit uncomfortable, but I hope it's going to help us as we consider uh, what it really means to to live righteously before God. Uh, And I hope it's a blessing to you. So chapter six, verses one to 18, let me just read those verses to you. Chapter six, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, And pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do because they suppose they're gonna be heard for their many words. So do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Any of you guys who've taken AP Lit, you probably have read the famous work by the 14th century uh, writer uh, Geoffrey Chaucer. He wrote The Canterbury Tales. Have any of you read that? Raise your hand. I see. Okay, so a good number of you have read, read this book. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. And uh, the, the story is basically this. It's, uh, uh, there's uh, these 30 pilgrims who gather into this inn, the Tabard Inn. It's in this place called Southwark. It's near London. And they're going on this this annual pilgrimage to Canterbury. It's about a 60-mile voyage. And they meet at this uh, Tabard Inn. And there's about 30 pilgrims there. And so the host, to help pass the time, he proposes that as they're traveling, that each person tells two stories on the way there and then two stories on the way back. And then the host is going to decide who wins the storytelling contest. And the prize would be a free lunch back at the Tabard Inn when they return. And so as they're going on their journey, you can read of these different stories. There's 30 pilgrims going on this journey. And maybe the only, I think, decently moral guy is this guy named the Knight. He's, 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 He's decently okay. He's a nice guy. The host actually likes him. It's obvious if you read the book but everybody else, they're just these immoral, debauched characters. If you read it, you'll see just their des- descriptions, even in the prologue, just really debauched, immoral people. Like the squire, for instance, he's this lusty young guy who puts too much emphasis on his looks. He's kind of lusty. And then you have the, uh, the wife of Bath. She's this flagrant adulterer. She has like five husbands and she's just bragging about her sexually promiscuous life. And she thinks she can give people advice on love. And then you have uh, other, characters, lesser lights, if you can have a lesser light, like uh, the Miller, who's this this belligerent uh, drunkard, this alcoholic. Uh, And then you just have a list of these characters, just just immoral in every way you can imagine. But maybe the worst character of the bunch is the last one. It's the pardoner. Scholars who read this work, people who review this book, The Canterbury Tales, the least like character they seem to agree upon is this guy named the Pardoner. He's this priest, and this Pardoner he has this long yellow rat tail like hair. It's kind of gross. He has this greasy face, uh, unbearded. He, he's kind of gender ambiguous. You don't really really know a gender. He's just kind of a strange cat. Uh, he is an itinerant preacher, so he goes from one place to another place preaching sermons. And his sermon is actually the same sermon every single time. And the thesis is, greed is the root of all evil. That's his main thesis. Greed is the root of all evil. And then he tells this fable about these three boys who are trying to kill death. And so then they try to find death. And then they come across the old man and they ask the old man, where can we find death so we can kill death? And then he says that death is under the tree further up the road. So they go further up the road. They find not death, but they, they find a lot of golden coins, a lot of treasure. And they're like, this is amazing. And so then they draw sticks and they decide one of the guys, one of the three to go into the town to get food and drinks for them while they guard the treasure. And then at nightfall, what they're going to do is they're going to take the treasure, secretly bring it back to one of their houses. And so the young guy who goes back into the town to get the food and drinks, uh, he's collecting all of it. And then an idea pops into his mind. He's like, why don't I just spike the alcohol, the wine with poison? And so he spikes it with a bunch of poison and he thinks to himself, if they die, I can keep all the treasure to myself. This will be amazing. And so he comes back and he gives them the food and drink, but unbeknownst to this young man, the other two also plotted and schemed to kill him so that they could divide the treasure amongst themselves. So they kill him and then they don't know that the wine is spiked. And so they both drink the wine and the drink and the food and they all three die. And so the old man was right. Death is under the tree. And as soon as the pardoner finishes telling this story, great, intriguing story, he's a very slick speaker. He has this jar of relics, which he pretends are saint bones, but they're really pig bones. And then he says, like, you know, if you take these and I'll I'll pardon your sin and you have to give me some money and I can uh, remit some of your sins and give you salvation. And so he's doing the opposite of what what he was claiming to preach about. He's a hypocrite. He's a priest purporting to be this moral spokesperson, and yet he's doing the opposite of what he was preaching against. He's preaching against greed, and now he's manipulating and misleading the people to give him money. And that's why they hate him so much. He's a hypocrite. His entire act is just that. It's an act. He's a sham. He's a fraud. And Jesus, you see in this chapter, in these 18 verses, repeatedly over and over again, he's he's condemning this sin, this grossness of hypocrisy. Look at verse two, he says, so when you give to the poor, don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, verse uh, uh, five, he says again, don't be, you're not to be like the hypocrites when you pray. Verse 16, he says again, don't be like the hypocrites. That word hypocrite is from a Greek word that just means a stage actor. Somebody who's slick at speaking, they wear many different masks, but they're pretending to be someone they're not really in real life. And Jesus hates hypocrisy. In fact, one author said that uh, hypocrisy Uh, is the homage that vice uh, pays virtue. That if you really wanted to slap virtue in the face or righteousness in the face, it's pretending to be righteous when you're not really. Or acting righteous, but you have a false motive. Or doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. In order to mislead other people and manipulate them for self-gain. is a worst kind of slap in the face to righteousness. And Jesus hates hypocrisy that's we condemns it so many times. And then in verse one, six, one is the main thesis. This is the central proposition. This is the main warning uh, in these 18 verses. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. This is the summary verse. This one verse is the main proposition and verses two to 18 is simply an expansion of this main thesis. This verse right here is the key. Now, if you notice that wording very carefully, and if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you think there's a slight contradiction here. Because if you read chapter five, verse 16, Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. But in 6.1, he's saying, don't practice your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward. At first glance, there may seem to be a contradiction, but here's the key. The key is the motive. It is not wrong to practice your righteousness. The key is the motive behind the act. If you're doing it to win the praise and the glory of men so that they glorify you, then you have no reward. But if you're doing righteousness because you want them to see you so that they may glorify God, that's the right idea. That all of your good works are designed to glorify God. You wanna make God famous, that's the key. Uh, If you wanna glorify God, it's simple. Your life is designed to make God famous. Is that your goal? Is it your goal to make God famous in everything that you do? That's really key. Uh, multiple times he mentions hypocrite, and I think it's it's only necessary we define what a hypocrite is. In modern usage, if we say hypocrite, normally it's you know somebody says one thing but then they do another thing; that they're not living according to what they are saying. But that's not the usage that Jesus is particularly using here in this passage, the usage that Jesus is intending here specifically uh, is when you do the right thing, but for the wrong motive or for the wrong reason. Do you get that? It's doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. So one sentence takeaway, if you tune out of the rest of the message, you need to get just this one thing at least. This is the main takeaway. This is a one sentence summary of this passage that you really need to grasp. And it is this, that if you do something that the Bible teaches you to do because you want other people to see you and be impressed by you, you have zero reward from your heavenly father, none whatsoever. But if you do something that the Bible teaches you to do because you love God, and you want to honor God, and you want God to be famous, and you want to glorify God, then you will have reward from your heavenly Father. That's just a one-sentence one sentence kind of summary or takeaway that you can grasp. And really, the antidote to this hypocrisy is in verse 24 of the same chapter. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, Uh, The basic key is God wants your total, absolute, undivided devotion to him and nothing less. Now, the hypocrites here in this context uh, is referring to the scribes and Pharisees. I know that because in Matthew 23, he's going to pronounce eight woes against the scribes and Pharisees, but fear not because this is also applicable to you because he says to the disciples and the crowds he's speaking to, don't be like the hypocrites. That of course assumes that you can be like a hypocrite. And and I'd say the same is true of you guys too that you guys can emulate some of these characteristics of a hypocrite, which are very dangerous. And so this is very important for you to grasp so that you can understand what hypocrisy looks like and why it's necessary to avoid it. Now, in the Jewish tradition, the three most important uh, spiritual practices, the most pious uh, practices were these three things, it's giving, praying, and then fasting. And it is these most important acts in the Jewish tradition that the Pharisees and the scribes were perverting for selfish gain. The most important ones. There's nothing wrong with these practices. There's nothing wrong with wanting a reward. Get that. There's nothing wrong with the reward. That's fine. God wants to give you good things. That is the nature of our heavenly father. Nothing wrong with the practices of giving, praying, fasting. Nothing wrong with wanting a reward. The key is the motive. Why do you do what you do? And Jesus singles out these three practices. You're going to see it in the rest of chapter six, giving and then praying and then fasting. Jesus singles out these particular practices because he's going to show you, he's going to demonstrate how the slightest hint of hypocrisy totally corrupts even the greatest act of religiosity. The slightest hint of hypocrisy corrupts totally even the greatest acts of religiosity, including these three, giving, praying, and fasting. So let's start with the first one, giving. Verses two to four. He says, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet. He says, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Now in this culture, in the Roman and Greco-Roman culture, charity wasn't really stressed. It wasn't very much emphasized, but in the Jewish tradition, it was very much central. They saw giving as more important than praying and fasting. Giving was a very important thing. In fact, in the apocryphal text, the the, the book of Tobit, uh, there's a chapter and verse that basically says this. I'm going to quote. It says, giving to the poor is better than storing up gold. Giving to the poor, listen to this, saves from death. This is what they're teaching. Saves from death and washes away every sin. Those who give to the poor will feel satisfied with life. I mean, that is arrogance of the highest order. To think that your giving can somehow save you from death and save and wash away your sin. That is opposite of the gospel. Jesus gave his precious blood and it is by his death that we are saved. It is by his death that we are washed of our sins not your actions, not your religiosity. We know that as Christians, we act in these ways, not because we're trying to curry God's favor, not because we're trying to earn righteousness, not because we're trying to earn a right standing before God and gain entrance into heaven. We are doing these things as a response to Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. And in a profound display of gratitude, we then do these actions of giving and praying and fasting or whatever religious practice you do. Now, I want you to notice just three phrases here. We don't have a lot of time. Three phrases, these, there's a lot of text here, so I'm gonna kind of rifle through this. Three phrases I wanna draw to your attention. First, notice in verse two, it says, so when you give. Notice it's not a matter of, of, of if you give, it's when you give. I think it is amazing to me, at least in that culture, praying, giving, fasting, very common practices. Yet for us, and a lot of us, you know, it's, it's, it's rare we'll find somebody who's regularly devoted to praying. Or regularly devoted to giving. I know you're high schoolers. I know you don't you don't make money, and you're not you don't have a lot of money to 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 spend around. But all I'm saying is, I think it's rare to see even a general, vague commitment to these religious practices. But at least in this text, he's assuming that you have a commitment to it. That he says, when you give, not if you give. Uh, I thought of J.C. Ryle. He has this very short, 72-page book called "Do You Pray?" A lot of these kind of books these kind of, usually focuses on how you pray or a method of prayer, but his, his book was simply, do you pray? He's asking a very simple question, do you pray? High school student, do you pray? Just a very simple question. I'm really glad every morning before this service when we can pray in the next room over, uh, we have a team of folks who help, help do that. And it's, it's a wonderful time we get to pray for this service and thank God for Pastor John's preaching and, and pray even for this service and the, and the music up here and everything. It's a, it's a beautiful time that we can pray but that's key do you pray here's the second here's the second phrase he says do not sound a trumpet before you same verse verse 2 do not sound a trumpet before you and this phrase uh, let me let me tell you it's not it's not a literal blowing of a trumpet. Don't imagine these Pharisees and and scribes going into place and literally blowing a trumpet. That's not what's happening here. The phrase is basically a play on words. Because in the temple synagogues, where a lot of the poor were congregating, in the temple synagogues, there were these kind of coin receptacles that were trumpet-shaped. And so they would throw the coins into these trumpet-shaped receptacles, and they would make a sound when you threw the coins in them. So it's kind of a play on words. And today we've kind of adapted that into an idiomatic expression for like tooting your horn. Like when you give somebody, you're trying to let everybody know, or you post it on Facebook or Instagram. Look, I'm reading my Bible. Look, I'm giving to this charity. Look, I'm, I'm participating in this, this philanthropy or, or this hunger fund. Whatever it is, uh, there are subtle ways in which we're trying to broadcast or show everyone our righteousness. And that's kind of the idea. There's an illustration in Acts 4, at the end, and the Holy Spirit so fills the disciples, so fills the people. They're so full of the Holy Spirit. And then they give up all of their possessions in a sense where they don't think that they, belong, they own it. They're willing to share their possessions and their property with everybody. They have a spirit of unity that is just distinguished. It's, it's unmatched. And everybody's willing to share. There's even a guy named Joseph who's also called Barnabas meaning son of encouragement. And he, he sells a plot of land and he, he, he puts all the proceeds in front of the disciples' feet. Uh, he's willing to just give everything. He's not holding on to everything with, a, with tight, tightly clenched fists, hands. But then in chapter five, there's a guy named Ananias. And Ananias, he sells a plot of land. And with his wife's full knowledge, he holds back some of the price of the land. Now you have to understand here, this is his plot of land. And he didn't have to sell the land But he sold it and he kept some of the price back without sharing it with the disciples. Only his wife knew. And then he gave it in front of the disciples' feet. And Peter instinctively, immediately knew what was going on there. He's only doing it as an act, a hypocritical act of giving, just to show everyone that they're giving and they're they're philanthropic and they're generous. But inside their hearts, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter says, you're not lying to man. You are lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. And immediately God kills him. Same thing happens three hours later. His wife comes back. She doesn't know about the scene. Fear has gripped the entire people there. His wife comes in totally unaware of what just happened. And Peter asks the same thing to her. And she lies to Peter. And again, Peter says, you didn't lie to man. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And immediately she's dead too. And they take her away and bury her. It's interesting. Like they didn't even have to do that. They could have kept their, their own possessions. They could have kept all the money but because they gave it and were trying to act like they were generous in a hypocritical fashion, they were killed. It's such a gross sin in God's sight. Like if you're claiming to be a Christian just because you wanna please your parents, but really, you know, deep down inside you're not, and you're just trying to go with the motions because you wanna please the people around you, you need to understand that that's blasphemous. To claim an association with the living God, the holy, undefiled, blameless God, but to live a hypocritical life of sin, unrepentant sin, blasphemous. It would be far better if you just completely rejected the faith than claim to be a Christian, but live a totally different lifestyle behind the scenes. There's a third phrase I want to draw to your attention. It's in verse three. It says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And of course, that's kind of bizarre to our ears, maybe. It's just a figure of speech. It's not saying that the hands have a mind of their own. It's not saying that the the hands can think. It's just a figure of speech. And the point is basically this, that if you're loving another person, for example, through giving, if you're trying to love somebody, for example, through giving, it's it's supposed to be so natural to you that you don't even think about it. It's kind of like breathing. You don't consciously think about, let me take the next breath. It's so natural to you, so naturally ingrained in you that you don't even think about it. You should be men and women, girls and boys, students who are so committed to loving one another, caring for one another, giving to one another, that it should be so natural to you, almost like breathing. I thought of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he said a very insightful thing. He says a lot of insightful things. But he says this, and I quote, he says, don't imagine, he's talking about a humble man. Uh, this, is what he, this is what he says. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, uh, that he will be like what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. For this guy, humility was so natural to him, so deeply ingrained in him, he's not even thinking about it. And I think this is true of my life and maybe for you guys sometimes is maybe you do a good deed. Maybe you share the gospel with somebody in need. Maybe you give money to somebody. Maybe you do really righteous things. Maybe you obey your parents. Maybe you do something that gives you recognition of some kind. Do you afterwards kind of mentally replay the scene? Maybe dwell on your acts of righteousness. Maybe mentally replay them to to fantasize about that good feeling of, oh, everyone saw me and they they were glorifying me and I feel good about that. Uh, That would be a very hypocritical mindset uh, where you're you're doing things because you want recognition and then you're mentally rehearsing it because you want to savor how everyone else was perceiving you as a righteous person. Let's look at a second practice. We looked at giving. Let's look at a second practice as praying. Uh, Verse 5, he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. So in, in these verses 5 to 15, he's going to tell us how not to pray. And then he's going to talk about how to pray. Verse 5 and 7, he tells us how not to pray. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they're going to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 7, when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, because they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Uh, one commentator, he was saying about the Pharisees of the day, he was saying that they were about 6,000 in number. And they, they were very well recognized. They had a lot of power and prestige. Everybody knew who a Pharisee was. They dressed in a way that was very obvious. Everybody knew a Pharisee when they saw one. And if you happened to be walking behind a Pharisee, he would stop at random or fixed time intervals, he would bend down, he would literally contort his body, his spine would be jutting out of his back, and he would be engaging in this very ostentatious, very obvious display of religious piety, Uh, he would be praying in front of everyone, uh, and it would be so obvious that everybody, all the workers nearby, everybody would stop what they're doing immediately and look to him because they didn't want to interrupt the Pharisee in the middle of his religious act. They even had a saying in that time that even if the king were to come and greet you, you were to keep praying the Pharisees. And even if a snake were to slither and, and wrap himself around your ankle, you were still to pray, never to stop. And every time they go into a village, they were to say a prayer. Every time they leave a, a village, they are to say a prayer. Every time they saw something interesting, they were to say a prayer. All the time, they're supposed to utter these prayers. And on a good day, they would utter maybe a hundred prayers, thinking that each prayer will give them a merit from God and, and, and win them divine favor from God. But they did it just to please men. They did it because they wanted to be worshiped by men. The rabbis even taught that the longer your prayers, the better. God is going to hear your prayers if it's longer, if it sounds better. We know that this is not true, high school student. We know that. Longer prayers is not going to make, get God's attention. You can't just bark at God and then he listens to you. You can say a very short prayer and he can still hear you. The key is, do you believe that God is listening to you? Are you praying God's will? Simply saying a formula like in God's name or in Jesus' name or praying a long prayer doesn't mean God's going to hear you anymore than if you prayed a short, simple, faith-filled prayer. He then tells us how to pray positively. Look at verse six. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, in 80, he says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he gives us a way to pray, verses 9 to 13. If you guys have watched YouTube, the guy, is, there's various guys like the Mr. Beast or some of these other figures. They find like random guys uh, maybe on the street and they're like, we'll take you to like some uh, nice grocery store or Walmart or something. You can get whatever you want in like a minute and 30 seconds. And so the clock goes and they get as many expensive items they can get. They don't go to the, the cheap stuff, they go to the most expensive stuff. The HD TVs, the best video games, all this stuff. They get the, the most expensive jewelry and, and necklaces and everything. And so in my short time that I have with you, I want to just give you two and a half minutes just looking at the most expensive jewels in this prayer. I just want to show you very quickly some of these phrases and give you a couple gems, a couple jewels to keep in your mind. And I think it will really help you if you understand these and apply these. And just a comment now on the form of this prayer. Uh, this is a very famous prayer, uh, the uh, the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. Just notice the form of the prayer. It's so simple. It's so clear. It's not obtuse. It's not. It's not so formulaic. It's just so simple, so clear, brief. And then look at the content. Let's let's briefly look at the content. It begins with our Father. Very personal language, very relational. In fact, in these 18 verses, your father, our father, repeated eight times. Uh, It's it's, it's a tremendous privilege to to be able to call the living God your father. And I don't want you to take that for granted. I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to say father and just take it for granted and just assume I can do that. It is such a grace of God that I have the privilege and you have the privilege to call the living God your father. Father. Because Ephesians 2 says that in your pre-converted, unregenerate state, you are children of wrath. You are not children of God. It would be blasphemous to call yourself a child of God if you are not a believer. How can you associate God with Satan? But then the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, transforms you, regenerates you, and then you go from being a child of wrath to, to becoming a son of the living God. Caden just read about that. In love, he adopted us as sons of God. That is an amazing transformation. Such an amazing privilege to be able to call God our Father. And that relates to the thrust of this text. Because when it comes to these practices... You have to understand that what distinguishes us from every other false religion, we are seeking a genuine, loving relationship with God. So when it comes to these practices like giving and praying and fasting, these spiritual practices are designed to help us have a meaningful, intimate, personal, loving relationship with God. And when you disconnect the practice from the person of God, now your religion just becomes hypocritical. You're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason, and you get no reward. So when you pray, when you fast, when you do any righteous thing, you want to consciously think of serving and loving God. That's why you're doing it. Is that what you're thinking? Like if you want to serve in high school ministry or you want to obey your parents, you're not just doing it so you can get them off your back. It's you want to do it because you want to honor God. You want to glorify God. You are going to get rewarded for that. Here's a second phrase. Not really a second phrase, but further on in the same line, our father who is in heaven, you learn about God that he is simultaneously transcendent and also so imminent. He's our father that's so relatable, that's so personal, that's awesome. But then he's also in heaven. But this is not just any ordinary person. This is the God of heaven who created the earth and the seas and everything in him. This God is simultaneously transcendent and imminent. We have the privilege to relate to this God. I remember at Camp Region just last summer, there's a student who graduated, not here anymore, but she came up to me and basically said, "I'm, I'm not a believer. All the four years she was here, I remember she would sit here and take good notes and everything, but she was not a believer. And the thing that just didn't do it for her was she just didn't understand how the God of the Bible is any different from the mythical gods of the Greeks. And the thing that popped into my mind in that very moment was simply this verse, our father who's in heaven. Because in one line, you see that God is simultaneously transcendent and imminent. This is not a feature that you can see in the Greek mythological gods. They're very transcendent or quasi-transcendent, but there's no imminence. Or maybe they're too human-like, but they're not very transcendent enough. When you look at the God of the Bible, you see something so unique there. Let's look at another phrase. He says, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You just notice here that this prayer, it begins with a plea to make God's name famous. Notice that. I think a lot of us, when we approach this thing of prayer, uh, we, might, uh, we might begin with ourselves. Here, it begins with making God famous. Hollow it. It means consecrated. It means set apart. It means purify. It means make holy, make great. Hollow it be your name. Like even when you wake up in the morning, your mind might be flooded with all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of worries, all kinds of anxieties about the day. One easy way to get rid of that anxiety is simply when you wake up in the morning, you just pray, God, I wanna make your name famous. God, will you glorify your name? And you'll always be happy. You'll always be joyful because God always glorifies himself. There's never a moment where God is not glorified. He always glorifies himself. He even uses the evil things of this world to glorify him ultimately. But if you begin with yourself, you begin with your phone, your text messages, all the worries and anxieties of your own life, you're just gonna be miserable. It begins with, hallowed be your name. And then he says, your name, your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even there you see this emphasis on God's will, not yourself. He says, your name, your kingdom, your will. And my question to you, high school student, is how often are you praying God's will? Versus your will. How often are you praying the will of God as revealed in scripture? Uh, it's all, all everywhere in scripture, God's will. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Are you praying for sexual purity? Uh, there's, there's scriptures where it talks about love loving one another? Do you pray to love one another? Do you pray to uh, cast away envy and malice and hypocrisy? There are many scriptures that talk about pursuing righteousness and purging sin. Do you pray these things for you? Do you pray for the gospel to go forth? Do you pray for salvation? There's so many ways you can be praying for God's will to be done. You can be praying for humility, long-suffering, wisdom, knowledge, discernment. These are ways you are evidencing. I'm praying your will, God. But at the same time, this doesn't mean you ignore yourself because look at the very next line. It says, give us this day our daily bread. This is an allusion back to the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus 16. Every day, they were relying upon God to bring manna from heaven daily. Once a day, they received the manna and they couldn't save it because if they saved it, by the end of the day, it would become corrupt and spoiled. And this was to teach them, to condition them, to train them to daily depend on God for daily provision. Maybe that's very hard today in our culture especially in America, we have so much access, wealth, access to food, resources. We're not spending each day desperately on our knees praying to God to give us food, usually, most of us. We have food in abundance. We have water in abundance. We have so many possessions and things in abundance. We're not really like the Israelites where daily they really had to depend on God. I think in the spirit of entitlement, in the spirit of human rights, where we declare food a human right, or healthcare, a human right, it's very difficult to reach a place where you're actually consciously depending upon God to provide these things. Everything you have the clothes you wear, the phones in your hands, the Bibles in your laps, everything you have, the shoes on your feet, everything that you have is ultimately from the hand of your Father who's in heaven. It is His common grace upon you, and it should cause you to depend on Him. Let's look at another phrase forgive us as we have been forgiven. Or forgive us as we for, we forgive others, excuse me. It says, forgive us as we forgive other debtors, our debtors. Now you need to notice the phrasing there. It's very intentional. You got to notice the phrasing because it doesn't say forgive us as you have forgiven us. It doesn't say that. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you notice that? It doesn't say forgive us as you have forgiven us. It says, forgive us as we have also forgiven others. In other words, he's basically saying that you are to be forgiven, that God should only forgive us insofar as we have forgiven others. Very important that we show that grace, that mercy towards others. But even to say, forgive us, even to say, God, forgive me, I think it requires an incredible amount of faith. It requires an incredible amount of belief, an incredible amount of trust in God. One of the things that I find startling is how many people struggle to believe that God can actually forgive them of every single sin they've ever committed in their entire life. Christianity is just so different from every false religion, every false, impotent God, because the God of the Bible, He is by nature a Savior, and He longs to, He loves to forgive. He has the power to totally forgive every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future. Every sin you've committed in the past and everyone you're going to commit in the future, doesn't matter how wicked, how bad it is. And it's amazing to me. I'll talk to guys sometimes, and even myself, I'll have to counsel myself that you can commit certain sins, and it doesn't make it harder to come back to God. Yes, sin is a grieving. It's, it's, it's bad. It's, it's terrible. It's a reproach against His name. Yes, Amen? But if you come to God with a genuine, repentant, contrite heart, and you believe that he is able to forgive you your sins, he will forgive you. And if you're saved, if you're a Christian, he has forgiven you. It's an amazing truth that should give you joy and should actually propel you to pursue righteousness. Let's look at the very last line here. Do not lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation. That word for temptation uh, is from a word as perosmos. It can, it can be translated a testing or a trial. Uh, James uses, uses it in chapter one, verse two. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials or testings of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So testing, trials, these are not inherently bad. If you are tested, if you face a testing or a trial and you prove yourself victorious, you hold on to the promises of God, you don't cower to the temptation, it is good for you because it refines your faith, it purifies your faith, it strengthens your faith, it produces endurance and perseverance, and that's very good. But look at what Jesus says after that. He says, But deliver us from the evil one. That word one should be added at the back there because Satan is in view here Jesus is saying that Satan will often try to take a testing something that is good for your faith he'll try to take that testing or that trial and then he'll try to turn it he'll try to convert it into a temptation in Matthew chapter 4 Jesus is tempted by Satan right and he proves himself victorious by not cowering to the temptation but, but maintaining his righteousness but I want you to notice one last thing about this very phrase He says, do not lead us into temptation. What do you notice about that phrase? Do not lead us into temptation. That is a preemptive prayer. Do you see that? He's praying this. You're praying this before you face the sin. And I think it's often that we maybe sin in an egregious way. We sin against God. And then afterwards, we come on our knees when we pray to God. That's kind of like a sin or a guilt coping mechanism. How helpful is that? That's good. That's fine. But. How often are you praying before you face a sin, before you face that lust as a sin prevention strategy? Because there you are evidencing a genuine trust in God that I can't resist this temptation unless God is with me, unless the Holy Spirit moves me. You need to depend on God. That's the common thrust in this prayer. And with that, let's move to the last practice, fasting, verses 16 to 18. Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. The Pharisees, they would, they would fast twice a week. Every Monday and Thursday, they would fast because Moses, they believed, went up to Sinai on those days. And so every Tuesday, uh, sorry, Monday and Thursday, they would pray from sundown to sundown. And you have to understand fasting by nature is a more silent act, Right? You're not making many sounds as you're fasting. It's more of a silent act. And so in order to get the attention and the recognition of other people, they would focus on their appearance. They would contort, manipulate their appearance so that they would draw the attention of other people. And they would wear various things. They would wear a sackcloth. And the sackcloth was this very coarse, very uncomfortable garment. Uh, It's black goat's hair skin that was upon them. And, and if they wanted to show how, um, how uh, grieved they were over their sin, they would even tear that cloth to show that they were very grieved over their sin. And everybody would see that. And then they would offer a sacrifice. They would take the ashes from the sacrifice. They would throw it up to the heavens and the ashes would fall upon their head. And it was a sign of disgrace and humiliation in that culture. And then they would sit on a heap of ashes. It's kind of like Jopi says, I repent and dust in dust and ashes. Uh, they would do that to show their repentance, to show that they're humble. They wanted everyone to see how righteous they were. And they would even neglect personal hygiene. You see, oil to the Pharisees is what shampoo and conditioner is us, to us today. Uh, the, the Oil was to protect their, their heads from the dry scalp, and, and, and they wouldn't even wash their face. Uh, they would make it very obvious that they were engaging in this very pious act. And Jesus' main point here is very simple. It's that you're to clean yourself up so it's not obvious to other people you're fasting. You don't want to live in a way or engage in these practices just to show off to other people. You don't want to be a spiritual show off. It's like, it's like that person, you know, maybe they, they work out in the gym and then they come to math class and they're all sweaty and they're trying to flex their muscles to impress the girls or whatever it is. You know, they're trying to show how tired and mas- manly they are. It's fake. It's hypocritical. Jesus is saying, don't just try to win the approval of others by changing your appearance, doing these kind of tricks and gimmicks. Why? Because God sees your heart. So here's the big picture. We're going to close here very soon. Here's a big picture. The key refrain you'll see in these 18 verses is in verse 4, 6, and 18. It says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The underlying issue here, the root problem behind all of these acts of hypocrisy is this root issue of unbelief, of a lack of faith. You see, the reason they wanted to engage in these acts, the reason they want other people to see them is because deep down inside, they don't believe that God sees them. The reason you want other people to recognize you is because deep down inside, you don't really believe God sees you and recognizes you. You see, the the fundamental issue here is a matter of faith. Uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul, he he famously popularized the Latin phrase, Coram Deo, uh, it's this Latin phrase that comes from Psalm fifty six thirteen. for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. And according to R.C. Sproul, this is how he captures the essence of what it means to live before God. This is how he, how he says it. He says it is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. That is what it means to live before God. You see, Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, he had two different kinds of righteousness that he distinguished. He distinguished between two different kinds of righteousness: the righteousness that is before God, coram Deo, and then the righteousness that is before other people. And when he talked about the righteousness that is coram Deo before God, it's very significant because that righteousness he describes as only an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes from God alone, because. If you were standing before God, all of your righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. You couldn't stand with your own righteousness. The only righteousness you could stand with is the righteousness that comes from God the Father. In fact, 2 Corinthians five twenty one it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Matthew six thirty three, 33, the, the climactic verse in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's the key. It is his righteousness that gives us a right standing before God, not our righteousness, not our superficial poppycock acts of hypocritical religiosity. None of these things will save us. It is only Christ's perfect righteousness. The author of uh, the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer, at the end of his life, he didn't actually finish the story, but he, he added this retraction at the very end of the book, this uh, confession where he basically confesses that a lot of his writings were motivated out of his sinful, lustful fantasies. And he didn't have to say that. He was regarded as one of the most important writers in the 14th century when it comes to English literature. In fact, he is regarded as the most important character, but he publicizes to the whole world that his motivations were wrong because you see at the end of his life, he realized something about God, that God, what he may be able to hide in private and what maybe other people don't see because it's hidden in private, God knows in full view. He's a guy who lived Coram Deo because God sees everything. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you that we can call you our Father. I thank you for these 18 verses. It's a lot of material, a lot of verses, a lot of truth packed into these 18 verses in one sermon. we could spend so much time on this, but Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths. I pray that you would use them to transform the lives of even one person in this room, Father. Lord, I pray for the believers, that you would encourage them, edify them in the truth, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would expose to us in your grace subtle ways that we are engaging in religious hypocrisy, where we're doing maybe the right thing but we're doing it with the wrong motive. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to expose that to us and that we would cling to your righteousness, that the basis of our confidence would be the perfect righteousness of you and not our performance. Father, I pray that in light of who you are and in light of living our life unto your presence, authority, and glory, that we would pursue righteousness that is not hypocritical, but genuine, sincere, and authentic. It's in your name we pray. Amen.